Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. This morning, I have with me Chris Hogg, CEO and co-founder for Marley Medical. Um, and Chris has a lot of experience in the industry. Uh, he was formerly at Propeller Health. Um, he is a biologist turned pharma, turned, uh, turned digital health entrepreneur, and he's done a lot of very interesting things throughout the industry over the years. So I'm very excited to pick his brain this morning. Chris, would love for you to give the audience a little bit more background on yourself before we get kicked off. Great. Thanks a lot, Mina. It's great to be here with you. Um, yeah, so I've been in healthcare my whole career, but sort of taken a windy path. I, I majored in molecular cell biology in school just because I found it really interesting and complex and then tried to work in a lab for a while, but that wasn't really very well suited to me. I'm, I'm not very patient. And uh, I think you have to be have great patience to be a good scientist. Um, and so then I ended up uh, going back to school and ended up in finance for a while and did investment banking in healthcare in New York, uh, which was kind of a crazy experience, which gave me a bunch of stories for a lifetime. Uh, and then we moved, I moved back to San Francisco and ended up working in, uh, got a really great job for a small biotech company where I got to do what was called new product planning or commercial strategy. And basically I've always been sort of a data analyst and synthesize information. And I got to just pull information from everywhere and try to figure out what doctors were doing and why and how patients were being managed and try to design clinical studies for new products. And it was just really fun, very expansive. And, and then that company got bought by Gilead. So I ended up at a bigger uh, biotech company where I got to run commercial strategy for respiratory and uh, cardiovascular. Uh, and then as one does in San Francisco, it was like early, early 2000s or mid 2000s. And there were just some really great networks here uh, that I got to, that I got into. Um, you know, Matt Holtz Health 2.0 network and the Quantified Self Group. Uh, and just started really getting passionate about uh, tech transformation and data transformation in healthcare. And it, back then it was very theoretical and conceptual and we were thinking way, way far out, but those groups were really interesting. Everyone was like thinking about companies and starting companies and it became sort of normal feeling. And so I ended up leaving Gilead to start my first company uh, back in 2011, which was hundred plus. Uh, and then I was very frustrated with the health system. Uh, and so this was, you know, iPhones were fairly new and we had uh, gamification and trying to and engagement. And so we were going to move upstream and just do uh, make people healthier using these great devices by prompting people to do small little healthy actions in their life, um, which was one of my first great lessons in healthcare, which does uh, commercialization for that is very, very tough. And uh, commercialization in healthcare is a, a very, very hard problem. Um, ended up selling that to Practice Fusion, um, which was super fun to run the data group of an EMR for a little while, and then uh, moved over and had the great opportunity to join Propeller Health uh, in 2014 um, to come out and start uh, an office in San Francisco because the company was based in Madison. And they, they it was just a really wonderful group of people and great mission, great founders. And what I really liked is it felt like an early biotech company. They were really um, passionate about data generation. Uh, had a couple of clinical trials ongoing at the time I joined and I uh, was disease focused and very narrow, um, very data driven and got to do all sorts of things. So I got to run product there and data, data science, design, all the things that were sort of easy to find people in San Francisco, but harder to find elsewhere out there. Um, ended up moving over. I ended up pitching all the time. I love to tell these stories and try to get people excited. And we were a B2B to C company. So working with pharma companies and payers and health systems and trying to uh, uh, sell those and implement them. Uh, so I moved over to be chief commercial officer and um, really 
just found a passion for the complexity of the whole healthcare system. You know, that's, I think, what's kept me in for so long is that it's just a bottomless pit of complexity. You have the physiology, but then you have the, the tools and then you have the commercialization and monetization. And uh, it's just a sort of never ending uh, complexity. Um, but that was really a great experience uh, all the way around. And then we were uh, very fortunate, sold that company to ResMed, um, stayed there for, for about a year and a half, uh, and then had the opportunity to sort of take some time off and really figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, that coincided with COVID uh, happening, which was, I don't know, I'm like the luckiest person in terms of timing, I think, out there. I'm like thinking about what I want to do. I've been working in remote monitoring and virtual care for you know 10 years and uh, now all of a sudden it's like normal and everyone is talking about it and using it and seeing it. And so I had the really good opportunity to, to start Marley Medical. And a lot of it really came off of lessons from Propeller, you know, the, about how to really commercialize these things and, and how hard it is to change a clinic. And so maybe it's easier to actually start a new clinic from scratch using some of these patterns and processes that we had developed that really work to engage patients in their care and use data effectively and generate really, really good outcomes. And then I just focus a lot then on sort of how do you structure it to uh, build a business out of it, you know, which tends to be, I think, one of the hardest parts. Well, and one of the things that fascinated me about Marley Medical was um, it's not just virtual primary care first, but it's specifically for complex patients with chronic conditions, which as you and I both know, that usually means multiple comorbidities, right? They're not yep. just cardiac patient. There's all, they're also pulmonology patient. They're also, you know, maybe have diabetes. Also maybe have, you know, five other things wrong with them. How did you come up with that care model? Uh, and basically diving in into the deep end, right? You, you weren't mm -hmm. messing around with, with the easy patients. Um, and, you know, let's start there and kind of dive in deeper from there. Yeah, you know, we started out um, with some hypotheses of which uh, patient populations to go into, but we really tried to do some analysis and study this time, you know, we wanted, I really wanted this time to make sure that we um, had, th had thought it through the whole model and, and how, you know, what could we do, who could we impact and improve? So what patient populations were really in need, uh, which, which patient populations were really suited to this data-driven proactive care model that we envisioned. And then also with, where, where, where are patients really expensive? You know, so there is a there's a chance to do better both clinically and financially. You know, you want to make sure that you start with a, a complex and expensive patient population. So if you do well by them, there's there's money to be made there, and you can build a big business. So we um, we looked at ones one where uh, it was very clear I wanted uh, diseases where remote monitoring could be very effective. Um, one of the things we learned at Propeller really well was that if you create this longitudinal uh, data stream on a patient, you can really see how they're doing. And it allows you to flip the model and be very proactive in how you manage these patients. It's very, it becomes very clear like, who's doing well and who's not doing well. And so if you can align the clinician's time with those who aren't doing well, and maybe not so much with the ones who are doing well, uh, you can see really, really good results. Um, you know, keep people out of the hospital, keep them out of the ED. And it's not really rocket science. It's just really identifying these patients and then having the ability to reach out to them, engage them, uh, and have them take actions, you know, whether it's medication changes, lifestyle, or, or whatever. Uh, then we also did a few marketing tests very early on. Um, one of the things that we wanted to get right uh, with Marley was around patient growth. Um, one of the, the biggest challenges in all of health innovation is on acquisition, enrollment, and growth. And, um, and so we did a bunch of marketing tests, you know, spun up websites and Facebook ads and wanted to see if there was demand out there. 
and ended up looking um, hypertension and cardiometabolic, just really uh, clicked all, checked all of those boxes. Um, really easy devices, uh, really clear data, especially around blood pressure. And so that's where we started. We knew that blood pressure would be a good hook to bring in this complex cardiometabolic uh, patient population. Um, and that's, so that's where we started, uh, was marketing for hypertension. Oh, that's great. And so, and I know you've, you've recently launched, can you give us a sense of where you all are in, in kind of the uh, framework and in terms of, of getting up and out there in the market versus um, trying to figure out setting up the networks? I know from personal experience, it can take years, right, to get into the appropriate payer network. So I'm curious to see, you know, how you found the process. Have you found um, the payers receptive to something like this or something they're, they're kind of waiting on the data to see, mm, it might work, it might not? Yeah, great question. Uh, so we started a little less than about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, and the first, you know, we just kind of mapped it out and there's just a series of steps. You know, first was us building and putting together a virtual clinic. Um, we also did an analysis to kind of decide where do we go to market? Um, there's going to be states that are probably better for us and states that are worse and ended up deciding on the Midwest for a variety of reasons. We have a big network there from our propeller days and there's a lot of really dense payer coverage, uh, big blues plans. So, you know, it's much easier if I have to negotiate with three insurers in a state versus 30. Um, and so that, that led us there. And so now we're, we are up um, and seeing patients. We're live in six states in the Midwest. Uh, we hired a care team in. So these are all uh, employees of our professional corporation, our PC. Um, we have a couple of MDs, a pharmacist, health coach, nurse. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and then we spend a lot of time on direct patient acquisition. And so we, we I, I love doing B2B. I, I really do actually love partnering. I know that sounds really weird, but I just, again, I, I think it's the complexity of the challenge, but I really enjoy partnering with payers and health systems and trying to figure out how to make it all work. But I just didn't want that to be our only channel of patient uh, growth. And so we started out doing direct acquisition, um, doing Facebook ads, Google, buying leads from other sources and building a pipeline line uh, and process that really effectively gets us in. Um, and so now we're up to about 350 patients in the clinic um, and growing about 20, 25 a week. Um, so our goal is to get to about 750 to 1,000 patients by the end of this year. Um, and it was really to, to demonstrate, you know, that, that the model works. Uh, to your point, you know, in order to get payers excited, it was very obvious to us um, early on that this market's getting very crowded. Uh, and it's hard for payers to differentiate. And so we knew that um, in order for them to take us seriously and get excited, one, we had to focus on a patient population that they were very interested in. And two is that we had to bring results and bring data. Um, and so that's what we've been, been doing. Um, right now we're in the process of just network contracting. So we start out as just a simple in-network provider. We've built it so we can bill a traditional fee-for-service while in parallel having conversations with the payers in our states about direct contracts and getting them excited about generating some data together, really seeing how we're, we're doing on, on total cost to care for their patients. And, and that was going to be my next question, diving into, you know, what are the downstream impacts on both costs and clinical outcomes that you're seeing or starting to see uh, with the patients that you're managing? And, and what do you hope to see in addition to those going forward, perhaps? Yeah, you know, we, we really think very linearly uh, at Marley. And so we started out with the problem of like, could we actually acquire patients, you know, and onboard them and get them in? And, and that, you know, surprisingly is a very, very hard problem. Uh, but we spend a lot of time there and that's working, working for us really well now. Uh, then it was, you know, can we actually engage these patients, you know, not just see them, but engage them in their care and 
uh, have, have them sort of keep, keep on plan. And we're seeing really good results there. Then next is, can we retain them and, and keep them? And then, of course, uh, what we're what we're looking at now is early clinical uh, signals that that it's working. Uh, one of the other great reasons to choose CardioMet and blood pressure is that the data are very easy to collect. Um, obviously, people we can train people on how to do home monitoring. Uh, we get really high engagement with monitoring. Um, we're averaging you know 15 readings per patient per week on average, um, and so that we find that to be you know remote monitoring is great for engagement. You know if you can get people and give them feedback, you know where they're getting feedback on their monitoring, it works really well. And so we're starting to see. And then also you know you collect the blood pressure data, and it's very obvious what you're looking for. Um, and so we we see early reductions in blood pressure, like we wanted to see. So right now. On average, patients are seeing about a six-point uh, drop in, in systolic blood pressure. Um, and if, but patients who have been on the platform longer are doing better. So if you've been on the platform for 12 weeks or longer, it's about a 9.5-point uh, reduction in blood pressure, which is really significant. And so one of the beauties of blood pressure data is there's so much uh, study done on blood pressure that it's very easy to model the impacts of a blood pressure reduction on other more important, you know, downstream effects. So there's this really wonderful. Um, there's a bunch of papers, but there's this really great meta-analysis in the Lancet that we that we like that shows, you know, for a 10-point reduction in blood pressure, this is what you'll expect to see downstream, and it's a 20% reduction in major adverse cardiac events. It's a 20, I think, a 28% reduction in strokes, 27% reduction in heart attacks, things like this, and so we can model. Uh, for payers and others, you know, what we'll expect to see downstream just from that early signal of blood pressure. Because um, of course, we'll have to do these studies and, and look at downstream effects and costs, but that, those take, you know, so long. So we really wanted something early that we could talk about. And then, and then one thing that you said that you made it sound so easy in terms of oh, now we've worked on patient engagement and now we've, you know, we're, that's working really well. And I, I love how you just glossed over that because I know a lot of people <laughs> bang their head against the wall on that so much. So how have you solved that problem of patient engagement? Because it's, it's potentially easier to get a patient in. It's way harder, as you and I both know, to keep them and not just keep them, but keep them engaged, like you said. So people have gone to all sorts of lengths, gamification, you mentioned earlier, other other aspects of it, um, reward systems, right, carrot stick approach. Um, how have you decided to, to approach this, given that you're not dealing with a kind of discrete situation where you fix them, they move on? This is, this is a patient you're potentially mm -hmm. going to have in life, right? So how do you continue, one, get them engaged, and then two, keep them engaged? Yeah, I mean, first I'd say it's, I think it's far from us having solved it, that's for sure. But I, I think, you know, we, we have learned a bunch over the years about how to do this effectively. Um, and I think you have to hit on a bunch of different human elements, honestly. Um, and so first, uh, one of the first kind of things that we had learned is, you know, friction is the enemy. And so we started as we designed the process, it you know, the patient journey, it's just looking for every source of friction and, and trying to remove it. And it, it is like little things uh, like we don't, we use, you know, blood pressure meters that have a cell chip in them. So a patient doesn't have to mess with Bluetooth and syncing Bluetooth. We found a propeller that this is a very big friction that leads to attrition and lack of engagement. Uh, we don't do downloadable apps, you know, it's a web app. So it makes it just really easy to, for a patient to come in. Uh, but then uh, the next is really building a human connection. I don't really know how to um, drive engagement if the patient doesn't feel like emotionally connected to 
the plan to their care team and feel invested in it. And so we decided upfront, you know, two for two reasons. One, we knew that we had to build trust quickly with these this patient population, which is again very complicated, has struggled with health challenges for a long time. Um, and, and it's also virtual, so it's a new modality. And so we decided early on we would give, uh, we, when we did our initial visit with the MD, we were gonna provide a lot of time. And so our average first visit with the MD where we established patient relationship is about 45 minutes. And, and, I, and, and that pays dividends through the whole life cycle of the patient because it really gives the, t the, the MD uh, the time to get to know the person. Right. Why? What are the sources of poor health? Like, why has the person been not engaged in the past and and how can we um, maybe address some of those issues or at least just have empathy for them? And we hear over and over and over again, the number one comment we get is I've never been listened to like that before. And, and I'm confident that that leads to higher engagement, retention and outcomes down the road. Next, then, is uh, frequency of interaction, you know, and, and making it obvious why the patient has to interact. This is where I think remote monitoring is really great. You know, if, if you can convince patients of the, the value that they'll get from monitoring, um, they'll do it very consistently. And that right there is a, a mechanism of them engaging with us and with their own health, especially then when you give feedback back. So we if somebody spikes on blood pressure, they're getting a call from us the next, you know, within 24 hours. If uh, every patient is being reviewed monthly right now and getting a message from the team about just how they're doing and if the change is needed or if we want to talk to them. So we developed back at Propeller this sort of, it's, it's a silly system, but this concept of give and get. They're going to give us something, they have to get something in return. And so we think about the value that we can give them from, you know, the data that they're collecting, the surveys that they're taking, et cetera. And then the, finally, the last one is giving reasons to, to reach out. So we have a lifestyle program. Obviously, medications are very important, but lifestyle is also. And that can be really engaging for the people who want it. You know, there's a, a lot of messaging that goes back and forth around health challenges for the week and, and talking to the health coach. And so we, we have this, this frequency of, of interaction um, that I think, you know, because we have the buy-in from the patient, it leads to pretty high engagement. No, that's amazing because I know how hard of a problem that is to solve. So that's the all uh, and each of the different steps you're taking working in concert, I can see how it's kind of creating that cohesive ecosystem to keep that patient in and engaged and, and moving along. Um, and then you have the other side of it, right? In terms of you mentioned earlier, value uh, value based care versus or potentially risk based arrangements versus our typical fee for service. You and I have talked about this before, where you know, we are in a fee-for-service system, unfortunately, for the most part. How do we move the needle to get to a value-based arrangement or get to a risk-based arrangement where, um, as providers, actually making an impact on costs and outcomes that we are able to, um, you know, get more credit for that, if you will. So how do you think about that? How have those conversations been going with payers? Do you find people more receptive to move towards that kind of model as opposed to the strict, hey, here's a 99213, right? Like, you know, so how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I definitely think it's changing um, and, and getting easier. And one of the things that um, made me optimistic about starting Marley was it seemed to becoming more it be becoming more common these different contract structures uh, that were actually starting to be favored by by payers. And so I think it starts with one. I mean, you have to focus. Unfortunately, I think these are just the facts. You have to focus on a patient population that's of interest to the payer. And so the, the you know these contracts are complex. They take time. They take energy on both sides. 
And so if you're not going after one of their core pain points, it's hard, I think, harder for them to justify uh, figuring it out. So one of the reasons, you know, we went into cardiometabolic is it's a very clear cost problem for payers. And so right away, they're a little bit maybe more interested in talking to us. Um, I think the other is, uh, you know, other, other points are um, even in value-based, one of our early learnings is you still need a fee-for-service chassis. You know, you still need to be able to work in that environment. And so for us starting out as a fee-for-service company was sort of just on the path. You know, we talked about different versions when we first started and V1 was just, can we actually enroll somebody? And V2 was the fee-for-service step. Um, you know, or, or sorry, V V two is like getting patients on and engaged, and V three was fee for service, and then V four will be value based. And I don't think you know you can jump steps often. And so right now we're generating data and evidence to prove that it works, so that that will help them engage with us. Um, but early conversations have been really good. Um, we haven't done you know we're still pretty new. Our our my model was I wanted to really get things working really well. Um, before jumping into that step, um, but that's where we need to get to. We we also you know it, it's really important because it, it it aligns incentives. Obviously, we invest upfront, so we have to be able to get paid on the back end. And we knew from Propeller, um, we published all these papers you know on reduction in hospitalizations in ED visits just from this proactive data driven model. And so we know it'll work. And so then we have to capture it. And then the last thing that I think is really interesting about value-based contracts is, you know, one of the biggest challenges is benefit design. You know, like, can you, can you send a phlebotomist to their home, even though it's not reimbursed? And is that an inducement or can you cover that? Can you cover home labs with aren't reimbursed? And so when you start direct contracting, you can actually like expand the scope of what you're offering and maybe even reduce co-pays on patients because you can write that into the contract. And so those are some of the little things we get excited about, about the direct contracts is we can actually make the offering better um, than we can in just fee-for-service. No, that, and that's that's such a key point that people often overlook in terms of setting up the, the structure of both what you're going to be paid on and also how you can serve, right? Because that can make or break the entire arrangement. Um, and, and you've been through this a couple of times now. What have you, and what are your key lessons or takeaways when you're working with payers? Like if you're giving advice to somebody that's, you know, maybe in your shoes, five, six, seven years down the road, looking at, I want to, you know, develop a new care model and I need to work with payers to make it successful more broadly, or potentially for you in the future, work with employers, right? How, what have you found to be keys to success to, to get that engagement, to potentially get that um, off the ground? Because one, if the payers don't buy in, you, you, it, unless you're going for an all cash business, like in mental health and behavioral health, yeah. it's going to be really hard. Yeah, I think um, I think there's some you know unfortunate truths. Honestly, one is that you have to um, you have to focus on a population that they care about, and you, you're not going to convince them that um, some some small population that's not that expensive to them. Uh, I think it's really going to be really hard to get their attention. And so if you you know you don't have to work with payers. Obviously, there's other models. You know, I think it's just really really important to match the offering to the model. And so I tell people a lot, you know, the, this unfortunate truth that sometimes maybe you have to start at the end. How are you gonna get paid and why? And then work backwards to what the offering is. You know, I, I get, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who have started from this way, which is the, you know, it should be the right way, honestly. I found this problem. There were these patients in need and I built this awesome solution for them. And then they figure out that what they built just doesn't fit 
into the paradigm of payer benefit design or payer um, uh, priorities. And there's kind of not a lot you can do about that. And, and this is just a really unfortunate truth. So I think it starts from really kind of deeply understanding the payer and, and how they like, work. And that for people who are looking from the outside looking in, that tends to be a black box, right? So how do you, 100%. How, how would you figure out what a payer, um, what a pair of cares about or, you know, what they're willing to contract for, like in, in terms of learnings for people uh, looking at that? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a terrible answer, but it's so base as to look what, what are the top spend categories for payers? You know, clearly that's what they're looking at. I mean, I remember uh, early on when we were pitching propeller and starting to talk to employers and asthma, you know, it's a, it's a very pro big problem, but not to them really, you know, back then it was diabetes, maybe mental health, and then dot, 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 like, yeah, asthma. And so they just really, they actually will run cost reports, you know, like give me a list of ICD-9 codes and I'll, you know, tell you what they cost. And if it comes back high, they'll be like, yeah, let's talk. And if it comes back low, like actually we have these other priorities. And so starting from, from there and then, and then trying to talk as much as you can, you know, to people in the, in the industry about, then you get into sort of contract structures. You know, and that you just have to learn from other people. Um, honestly, lawyers are great at that. Finding lawyers who do these contracts a lot kind of know what what is because uh, you, you want to be, you know, down down the middle. Uh, new new is hard. And of course, you can do it. But there are contract structures that payers are used to and have put in place around certain shared savings programs or how they uh, benchmark or, or things like that. So really trying to understand, you know, how other people do it and tuck in behind. No, that makes a lot of sense um, because I've, and, and, and you've worked with payers before, so it's probably less of a black box to you, but I've talked to, to a number of entrepreneurs that have exactly what you said. They're like, I found this problem. I know I can solve it. I'm like, are you sure anyone cares if you solve it? And which is such a harsh thing to say sometimes. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. It's true though. Yeah. It, it, it is. Yeah. True. Yeah. No. And I think then, you know, the black box isn't just around contract structure. I mean, the black box, it's still a black box for me. I mean, these are such complicated organizations. It's like, are we talking, should we be talking to the network folks or should we be talking to clinical or should we be talking to product or, you know, what side of the payer house? I mean, it just, it gets infinitely complicated. And so it's a, it's a very challenging market to get into. Yeah, no, 100%. And you mentioned that there are obviously other models. There's the standard fee-for-service, there's value-based, there's there's cash pay. Um, and then we didn't even talk about employers, right? And so you've talked about the payer side and going after that, but a lot of the larger, and I know that's also a crowded market, of course, but but employers actually care because for them, it's not just the cost of that care for that patient, especially when they're self-insured, but it's that, that employee not showing up for work or that employee's family then keeping them home because they're sick because they had some kind of complication, right? So they're potentially even more motivated because they not only have the financial incentive, but they have their own internal kind of work-related incentives. Um, is that an area you've already started to explore? Or do you feel like that is step two after after the payer? You know, it's funny. I've, I've tried, I've worked in every, almost every channel almost except employers. So we, we didn't really have a big employer business at Propeller. Um, and then at Marley, I don't really, I don't really look at it um, as a big, big opportunity. I think our patient population tends to be a bit older. And so you start getting more, you know, Medicare is probably more interesting to us than employers. We do have commercial patients because we're doing direct acquisitions. So we kind of open up a big, a big door, but definitely, you know, our average age right now is 60. Um, and so we're skewing more towards Medicare. Um, so may, maybe someday we would do employers, but it is it is lower on the list for us. Um, I'm a little 
proud of the fact that I haven't gone to employers, you know, tried everything else, um, you know, because everyone, you know, it's like you try this, you try that, you end up at employers. But the, the reason, as you said, is, is, is totally legitimate. You know, you can win two ways with employers, both on cost and on, you know, the benefit side of, of having a good employee benefit. Um, but yeah, that market is getting extraordinarily uh, um, crowded because there's been success, you know, and people see that, uh, you know, the Amadas, Lavongos, Gingers, Headspace have been successful in the employer market. So seems to be seems to be valid. But you run into the same problems that if it's not one of their top priorities, it's just really hard to get their attention, unfortunately. Yep. No, that makes sense. And you had focused on the cardiac metabolic hypertension areas. Um, and I, I'm curious, how much runway is there versus are you already looking for kind of indication number two? And as a multi-specialty group ourselves, we we see things across the spectrum. And so I'm curious as to how many of those check the box for uh, for being comorbidities that are hugely expensive to treat just from a kind of physician standpoint, from a from a cost standpoint. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in this cardiometabolic patient population. So we started out, so we definitely look at a, um, at ex how we expand our scope of practice over time or what we own. Um, and so right now, you know, we started out with hypertension. It was easy to get data. We, you know, there's clear guidelines. We know what we're, we're doing. Uh, we're, we've moved into now weight. Um, 50, 60% of our patient population is obese. Um, and so this is a, a big, you know, big issue in our, our population. Um, as you probably know from uh, from implementing, labs are, are pain, um, and so we're working on uh, streamlining and making our lab process more efficient. That'll uh, enable us to do more around lipids and diabetes because um, we want, you know, these are all a constellation, and so we want to be able to manage uh, that that patient. Next, I think we will look at mental health. Um, Fifty percent of our patients have a diagnosed mental health condition, and so we've been talking to potential partners there. Uh, where we could bring in some other service provider that we could work with to uh, provide that service. Uh, obviously, we've we've spoken about different specialists and and care that we might bring in. Um, but yeah, I think there's a, a very clear um, process. Um, we've looked down the road at you know heart failure is very similar uh, to what we're doing. We already have scales in in the market and blood pressure cuffs in the market. We'll have glucometers. Um, so that works. And then, yeah, later we've definitely looked at uh, other diseases. You know, our, our platform and this data-driven model that we have would work for other things as well. And so we look, you know, down the road, you know, if we're wildly successful. We have many opportunities. No, that's fantastic. And, and one thing we, you mentioned that we haven't dived into yet, um, and I know we're coming up on time, but I do want to make sure we touch on it, is the platform that you mentioned and the data. And the data is what makes it all go around and what makes it work, right? It, it lets you focus where you need to focus, be efficient where you're spending resources. Can you tell us a little bit about the Marley platform and what you're using to, to track the patients and, and figure out kind of, um, for a lot of people, I feel like that's where the secret sauce is in terms of tech-enabled um, clinical services or digital health, however people want to call it. It's not just using, you know, standard medicine, practicing standard medicine, but doing it in a smart way. And that's using the data to show you where where should my efforts be today, right? So I'd love to hear more about what Marley is doing with the platform itself to get that data that's making you successful. Yeah, absolutely. So it's definitely two pieces. One is, you know, how do you get the data and then what do you do with it? Um, and so, you know, the, you have to focus on getting the data first or else, you know, for, for us, it's without the data, you're sort of flying blind. You don't know how any single patient is doing at any one time. And, and there's not, I think, a lot that you can do proactively. And so we, uh, 
we another lesson from Propeller is hardware is very, very hard. Um, and so we don't make hardware. <laughs> um, so we, there's tons of devices out there. So we prefer cellular enabled devices. Um, we work with a great little company that does procurement and shipping called Impilo. Um, and they sort of procure devices for us and ship them out and bring the data back and give us access to it. Currently, we have blood pressure cuffs uh, in the field on everybody. We have increasing number of weight scales. Uh, and then when we get down towards diabetes, we'll do glucometers as well. Uh, again, those are all cellular enabled. So we just get data very frequently and rapidly. Um, but that's the core. That has to work because um, that's sort of, you know, the, the base. And then we use those data to risk stratify people in, in sort of real time. So on intake, the MD will, will classify a patient based on their perceived risk. And a lot of that's based on their um, their metrics, um, but also um, if they're a smoker or maybe they have a substance abuse issue that puts them at a higher risk. Um, and that'll determine how often that doctor wants to review that patient. Um, so what we're doing is our platform basically today is creating tasks automatically for the care team. And so we're looking at both uh, the risk level of that patient and when they should be reviewed. Uh, then we also look at out of bounds uh, alerts, you know, a spike in blood pressure, too high, too low, heart rate, too high, too low. Uh, and then we also look for people who have worsened since the last time they were reviewed. So maybe their, their blood pressure has gone up. That then uh, automatically pushes to the clinical team, what we call our, it's just a today view. It's basically an inbox of tasks. And, but those, instead of being reactive, like we're gonna huddle on a patient who's coming in today, it's we're gonna huddle on this patient because they need to be reviewed right now. And then the MD reviews those um, and decides whether a care uh, plan change is needed, medication change or lifestyle, and then it's implemented. No, that's great. And, and that, that comprehensive description is exactly kind of what I think it highlights both how complex and how successful it could be, right? There's a lot of pieces that go into it, but because you're capturing such a wide range of data and thinking about it more holistically, it makes it that much more likely you're going to get that, that success with that patient, which is, which is amazing to see. Yeah. And it allows you to switch from, you know, it's the cliche of switching from a reactive model to a proactive model. You know, we're pushing the patients to the clinical team that, that need them. And then the next step, you know, you have to be able to outreach to them and connect. And that's where the engagement comes in. But it's really that, that you know, if you can identify the patient, give it to the care team, and then they can actually reach out and do something, you know, magic happens and you can see really, really great results. No, that's amazing. Well, I can't wait to see more of that magic happening and, and hearing how, how these uh, these initial trials are going across these, uh, you know, first few states you've launched across. So um, congratulations on all the progress so far, and I can't wait to hear more. Thanks so much, Mina. It was great talking to you. Great to see you again. Yeah, same here.